Welcome to the Sheila Kama Strategy Podcast. We're going to start a series on environmental protection. And I thought it would be ideal that we understand fundamentally what the laws are that help us protect the environment. And with me today is Mutuso Hliwayo. Mutuso is an executive director and founder member of the Zimbabwe Environmental Law Association based in Zimbabwe. He has a dual master's in constitutional and human rights law. Zela, as uh, the organization is called, is a public interest environmental law organization that works to promote democracy, good governance, sustainable development, transparency, and accountability in the natural resource sector. Mutuso, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extracted Podcast. I look forward to our conversation today. Thank you. And I look forward uh, to a great conversation too. Wonderful. So you talk of environmental law. What do we mean by environmental law? Yes, there are several branches of law uh, of which environmental law is one of them. So when we talk about environmental law, is basically a branch or a board of law that regulates the interaction of the human beings with the environment. Uh, and uh, this law basically regulates how man interacts with the environment on the understanding that to a large extent, man is dependent on the environment for the sustenance of his livelihood. So to that end, if man doesn't um, interact with the environment in a, a good manner, then this will actually end up jeopardizing his ability to develop. So as we speak today, there are about 170, uh, 148 countries uh, based on the statistics of 2017, which shows that there are countries globally that have included the right to a clean and health environment in their constitutions. And these countries, are building on the development that actually started way back in 1972 through what is called the Stockholm Declaration on Environment and Development, uh, which was held in the uh, Swedish town of Stockholm, where that realization was made that indeed man is responsible for either making the environment, for preserving the environment, or for destroying it. And if he is to do it uh, sustainably in terms of the utilization of the environment, then that's why we need the concept of sustainable development. So as a result of that foundation that was laid by the Stockholm Declaration of Environment and Development, which by the way, uh, we had uh, the Stockholm Plus 50 International Meeting uh, that was held in June uh, this year, again in Stockholm, where the world was basically looking back to say what have we achieved since the Stockholm Declaration in 1972 and going forward, what are some of the challenges that are there and what do we need to do? So out of that, the concept of sustainable development was born. And then you go to uh, the Rio Ed Summit uh, in, in, in 1992 and other conferences like the Johannesburg Summit on Sustainable Development, but they were building basically on that foundation. That's how the concept of environmental law has actually evolved or emerged. So basically to regulate men's interaction with the environment. Uh, and how they derive benefits from the exploiting of those resources. So it helps in terms of environmental protection, environmental conservation, and most importantly, 
to make sure that there is sustainable utilization of the resources that are able to sustain life, but also ensuring that the environment itself is protected against one pollution, against degradation, against biodiversity loss. And now we are talking about climate change. So all those are elements that can affect the environment. And that's why the environmental law becomes important in terms of regulating that interaction that happens uh, between men and the environment and ensuring that both uh, derive benefits, the environment itself, and also men in terms of deriving benefits that sustain uh, economic development. But uh, it's just a part, yeah? Because apart from the law itself, it also depends on other issues. Uh, the politics also becomes important, the scientific considerations, the economic considerations, and the ethical considerations, all those help to shape our environmental law. Hmm. So, so yeah, as, as presumably with other laws, because, you know, the, the law always has to take account of the, the, the ethics, uh, the law always has to take account of the politics of interest, geopolitical or otherwise, and, and the law ha always has to take, to some degree, I guess, uh, the economics of uh, what we're trying to achieve. I, I wanted you to just pause for us for a minute and you have made continuous reference to the notion of sustainable development. We know the notion of sustainable development from an economic perspective, which is to say, uh, you know, to exploit the resources we have today without compromising the needs of the future generations. Do we have a legal view of what sustainable uh, development of natural resources is, or do we fall back on the economic one? Yeah, to a large extent, we, we fall back on that uh, uh, economic notion in terms of looking one, the ability of uh, current generations to derive benefits uh, from the environment. But in doing that without compromising the ability of future generations as well to derive environmental, economic, and social benefits from that environment. So when you look at it, that concept, in my own opinion, tries to strike that, that, that balance. So when you look at the development of the law itself, it is also largely based on that concept of sustainable development, uh, which tries to balance those interests, the economic interests, the environmental interests, and also the, the social interests. So yes, to a large extent, we're influenced by that. But out of that, that's where we drive this definition of environmental law. So the concept of sustainable development, we can't talk about environmental law without a sustainable development, because sustainable development actually lays that best to say, this is what we would want to happen, but how do we achieve the balance? And the law plays a very important law role in terms of uh, uh, striking that balance that is there to make sure that there is economic development, but without affecting uh, the social strata, without uh, affecting the environmental base, which as I've already indicated, is critical for economic development. So I think in my opinion, uh, the law does play a very important role in terms of uh, making sure that the concept of sustainable development is realized. Absolutely. So uh, I guess if one were looking at it then from the ESG perspective, the, the notion then of the environment as our source of livelihood and the importance of protecting it becomes quite obvious. And, and when you also you look at the law from the perspective of uh, the social, which is allowing human beings to continue to make a, a living or subsist based on the environment. And, and then when you bring the law 
then you are in ESG terms, essentially bringing the legal tools to be able to achieve this. Would that be uh, correct? Indeed, you are, you are very correct, uh, Sheila. So when you look at environmental social governance, to a large extent, it's deriving from the environmental law itself and also building on it. So again, I, I, I talk about the law providing that balance. So when you look at environmental social and governance, again, it's that, that the realization that, I mean, the environment is important in terms of economic development, but also uh, the people, which is where the social comes in. But when you now look at the, the governance, is that how do you regulate that interaction between people and the environment? And that's where the governance actually comes into, in terms of, uh, as I, again, there are so many forms of governance, and this is now environmental governance. So when I look at environmental law and environmental and social governance, they are very interdependent or interlinked uh, in terms of their role and how they help us to achieve that concept of uh, sustainable development. So you begin to look at it from a, a concept of responsible investment. So we know that uh, investment is critical for us to derive economic development from the environment, ironically. But how do you ensure that it is done responsibly? I think there is now this talk by everyone realizing that it's no longer just investment for the sake of investment, but we are now talking about responsible investments. So for me, environmental and social governance actually brings in that concept of a, a responsible investment by the investors to make sure that uh, the environment itself is taken care of, but at the same time, while the shareholders are also getting the benefits and the returns uh, on investment uh, from their investment. So for me, it is indeed a combination of those things, uh, environmental factors, the social factors, the governance factors, which is what I've already alluded to say, when you look at the environment or environmental law, it tries to strike that balance. So for me, I would say that it is indeed a building on the concept of of uh, environmental law. So we can't have environmental, social, and governance without environmental law. And so the two are dependent on each other. They strengthen each other. They build on each other and uh, combine them. Then we're able to achieve uh, that concept uh, of sustainable development. So I would say that environmental law is very important in terms of pro promoting environmental and social governance. Absolutely. So. You know, it's fair to say that uh, the law can be very, you know, weighty and 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 heavy in terms of uh, content because obviously uh, lawyers try to cover all the aces. Mm -hmm. But suffice to say that uh, every law has its main pillars, and and I wonder whether you could share with us when one looks at environmental law. Uh, mm -hmm. Can we identify, say, three tenants uh, that you know basically form the foundation of environmental law with a view to protecting the environment? Indeed. So we have already agreed, Sheila, that the major goal, whatever we do, is to achieve sustainable development. So how does the law help in terms of um, achieving that based on those uh, key pillars that you are making reference to. So there are a number of pillars uh, that help in terms of promoting sustainable development that form the foundation of environmental law. The first one is the polluter pays principle. 
It means those that are responsible for degrading, polluting, and contaminating the environment must be able to pay the costs that are associated with that, with those costs. So that acts as a, a deterrent to say, I cannot dump this uh, ton of toxic into the water or into a river because I'll be held accountable. Uh, someone may be able to do the cleaning, uh, maybe the environmental management agents, for example, but the bill should be borne by the people that the people people that are responsible or the company that is responsible. So the polluter pays principle. It is a very key principle of uh, the concept of sustainable development, which underpins environmental law. Then there's also the uh, principle of uh, environmental impact assessment. I mean, which is basically a very important planning tool, which says before we undertake any development, can we have an understanding in terms of the possible environmental impacts of this development and how can we mitigate those impacts? So the idea of environmental impact assessment is not to stop development projects, but it's basically to see how the possible environmental uh, impacts, negative environmental impact that can actually arise from that project may actually be, be mitigated. So maybe you want to construct something and you realize that probably using this form of technology will actually result in irreversible environmental damage or degradation, then you propose a new technology that can actually utilize the environment as it is by preserving it. So that's another very important uh, principle of environmental impact assessment. Then the, the precautionary principle is also another key element of environmental law, which basically says that in the absence of certain scientific knowledge, then that should not mean that we should continue with a project on the understanding that are probably we don't know what are going to be the impacts. So let's this project continue. So in the absence of that scientific certainty, I think what the precautionary principle says, let's err on the side of caution. So if we are not very sure in terms of what is going to happen to the environment as a result of this development, so why proceed with the development in the first place? Because by the time that the scientific knowledge becomes certain, by then we could have caused irreversible environmental damage or degradation. So the precautionary principle is also equally very important. Then the concept of intergenerational and intragenerational equity, I think that's what we've been talking about to say, look, the current generation must be able to enjoy those benefits that are associated with the environment, but without necessarily compromising the ability of future generations uh, to also derive benefits from that very same uh, uh, environment. Then of course, common but differentiated responsibilities. I think that's a very important principle of environmental law that we are all responsible uh, for causing maybe damage to the environment, but we have a different responsibilities. Today we speak about climate change, but I, I think as you know, it's not everyone that is really responsible equal in terms of causing climate change. There are those countries that industrialize and developed uh, by causing greenhouse gas emissions. But when you compare with Africa in terms of our emissions, they are very limited. So I think that's where that principle comes into say, less. yes, we all have a responsibility, but who is more responsible? And what role should those that are more responsible play compared to a little Zimbabwe or a little Botswana that may not have been responsible in terms of causing uh, that, 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 that pollution? Uh, then lastly, I think uh, the one on integration to say the environment is interlinked. So it's not just the, when you talk about in, environmental protection, it's not just environmental law only that may be uh, relevant, but there are also other forms of law administrative law that may be necessary into planning law also becomes law uh, important. So integration talks about the need for all these actors to come together in terms of decision-making 
when with the view of protecting or conserving the environment. So those are mm. some of the principles that are key in terms of um, forming the backbone of environmental law. Yeah, you know, uh, so a couple of things, Mutuso. <laughs> First of all, Botswana is not little. Zimbabwe may be little, so speak for yourself. We are big shots here. So, <laughs> well, 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 I, I, I meant in terms of uh, pollution. No, of, of course. Uh, I'm just yeah, being yeah, facetious. Yeah. I'm being facetious. But I mean, seriously, listening to you break down these tenants, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by a couple of things. The first is how commonsensical the law is in its quest for justice. That mm -hmm. if I explained these principles to my grandma, albeit mm -hmm. that I wouldn't use legal language, she would be able to comprehend that we, we all have a common responsibility, but that we are differentiated by the extent to which we contribute towards damage or preservation of the environment. This is so common sense and that we must be hold, held liable proportionate to that, which is why I find it extraordinary that at COP27, they're only now debating, the, uh, including in the agenda, the loss and damage, while at the same time excluding liability. Because if, if you are right about these tenets of the law, we've already passed that gateway. That principle is already embedded in the way that we perceive justice, not just in environmental terms, but in terms of how we are held to account. The same uh, goes for polluter principle. It's so common sense. You pollute, you clean the air, you know, and if you don't do it physically, you pay for it. Now, why we need 27 meetings of the entire world for this principle to become manifest and for us to reach consensus boggles the mind. But but that was just me marveling at uh, the, the, if you wish, the uh, importance and the poignant nature of what you are saying. Let me ask you, you know, we've talked about the principles, but if you break the law down itself, has the law kept up with new developments such as carbon trading and carbon taxation? Because these are all part of the ecosystem that is meant to help protect the environment? Yes, uh, the, the law has indeed uh, adapted to those uh, developments. So when you look at uh, law itself, in terms of risk development, we have uh, the international level. I mean, where it all starts, international law, then we come to the uh, regional level or the continental level, for example, where we have the African Charter on Human and People's Rights, and it also speaks about environmental rights as human rights, where this is all coming from. Then you go to the national level. I think that's where we begin to have uh, the constitution itself uh, providing for the right to a clean and healthy environment. So if you look at our constitution in Zimbabwe, it does provide for that in terms of section 73. But apart from that, you also now begin to have the development of uh, national laws and the policies. So for example, we have the Environmental Management Act, we have the National Environmental Policy and Strategies, we have a Climate Change Act, we have a, a National Climate Change uh, and uh, Climate Change Response Strategy, uh, we have a, a National Climate Policy and all those. So one would argue that indeed, the law has actually tried to adapt to these changes and these developments that are happening. Uh, so even when you look at other countries have even developed uh, laws that uh, regulate carbon tax, 
And I know in Zimbabwe it's actually embedded in terms of our Environmental Management Act and all those. So to a large extent, indeed, there is that uh, realization uh, that uh, for the law itself to be relevant, it has to be to reflect those principles. So when you look at the Environmental Management Act, it is embedded in these principles. You look at the uh, uh, national environmental policy and strategies, these principles that we are talking about, that we are discussing about are actually embedded in, in, in those policies. So that's a way of showing that indeed the law itself, as it gets developed at the national level, it is indeed responding to these uh, tenets of uh, sustainable development, to these uh, key principles that I've already outlined. So I would say, indeed, we are developing laws that are reflective of those issues, those concerns that are happening at the global level and also at the regional and continental level, reflected at the national level, because that's where we, we are able to have influence. So as Zimbabwe and as Botswana, those things happen. So one of the ways in terms of implementation is basically to domesticate uh, the, those laws at the national level. And once you do that, that's where you now have now the uh, ability to implement and hold those that are responsible, accountable, based on those international principles or regional standards that could have been developed related mm -hmm. to the environment. Yeah. And the law. yeah. So rather the one said you you said that the law is used as a deterrent, which is to say we start off with the assumptions that people are going to behave. Mm -hmm. But then we say, just in case they don't behave, we will use this instrument to call them to order, essentially. Uh, but isn't there another approach, which is to say, we are not going to assume you are going to comply. We are going to encourage you to comply by putting, mm -hmm. if you wish, uh, incentives in place uh, for mining or oil and gas companies. And I, I wanted to... Uh, test your own views. How, if at all, can countries combine both the law as a, an instrument to deter with laws that act as an instrument to incentivize so that we never have to revert to, to the law? How can we strike this balance? Indeed, that's the essence of uh, the, the law, uh, the carrot and stick approach. So one, it is there to one and encourage uh, people through those uh, incentives. So when you look at most laws, uh, they also provide those uh, incentives. For example, uh, those that are able to conduct their activities in an environmental friendly manner, there could be some incentives, uh, tax breaks that could be given. Uh, so the law does include all those uh, three components, uh, uh, Sheila, the, the, the carrot, which is basically the penalties, yeah, and also uh, the uh, deterrence uh, that we talked about, and also the encouragement to say, if you are complying, then how do we reward you for that? So that probably through that behavior, you can also encourage others to behave in a good manner. So we have seen a number of legislations uh, that are, are developed that provides those incentives. Uh, of course, at times they are abused, but in terms of um, our analysis, in terms of my analysis, I've seen that most of these laws does mm -hmm. provide that. So at times you are fine because you've broken the law, but if you have complied, 
you are you are not fined, or at least there are some incentives that are put. So, for example, we're not talking about climate change. So, if someone is importing uh, equipment that is uh, environmental friendly, for example, then we've seen instances where they are not charged the duty. That acts as, an, in my opinion, as an incentive for people to bring in equipment that helps in terms of reducing greenhouse gases that are responsible for causing climate change. So there, there are those incentives that are, are provided if you look at it from that perspective. So my argument or my point is that indeed the law uh, uh, has all those components, uh, those three components that you have made reference to in terms of the deterrence, in terms of the incentives, and also the need uh, for penalties whenever violations have happened uh, when the law has been broken. So it does provide those uh, balancing acts and uh, it's up to those that are investing or those that are involved uh, to choose what they want to do. But uh, generally, all those choices will be available in terms of the, the law. And those that break the law, then they got punished. Those that also uh, uh, operate within the confines of the law, they are rewarded. But I think what we have seen mostly is that some of the penalties that could be there are not deterrent enough. And this is what ends up encouraging people to break the law because they will realize that the profits that they are able to make far outweighs the penalties that they are being charged. So if the penalty itself is equal to the profit that is generated or outweighs the profit that is generated, then the more deterrent it is. Sure, in other words, no pain, no gain. Uh, you know, if 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 you ensure that they feel the pain, then uh, there the law will gain because then it it works as a genuine deterrent, whether it is financial or otherwise. But if in effect the pain they endure financially or otherwise is is less than the profit they make by ignoring the law, then it compensates, and 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 in that case they are quite comfortable to go ahead and, and it's knowing what the threshold is, I guess, is what you're saying and making sure that uh, the law and the penalties uh, are uh, impactful. I mean, it, one of the, the, the things, you know, when you talk about uh, the impact of uh, penalties or for that matter, the impact of incentives, of course, th th that speaks to the next stage in the in any law, which is, not just being able to cascade from international, regional, constitutional, and national laws, but also being able to implement these to the latter uh, and being effective. And, and I wanted to get a, your own views of how capable regional governments are to not just translate these international norms uh, and regional standards into laws, but that at national level, they can actually enforce them. What do we know about that, that gap, which is so vital? Yeah, countries to a large extent are able to enforce this uh, based on their national laws and, uh, and, uh, and the policies. Uh, I made reference to, for example, the Environmental Management Act, I've also made reference to the constitution. So these are the bases that are there in terms of uh, enforcement. Uh, but at times, this ability to enforce 
is compromised uh, by the need uh, for investors. Uh, you know, it's a region that is actually competing for investors. So at times, if there's a feeling that a certain country's standards, environmental, a social and governance standards, the environmental laws are very tough in terms of compliance, that may end up, in their own opinion, scaring away investors. And that has resulted at times in the lowering of standards by governments in a bid to woo investors. So let's talk about the mining sector, for example. Uh, it is one of the key economic sectors in the region. And I think Zimbabwe and Botswana are good examples. South Africa, Zambia, DRC are good examples of where the economy is largely dependent on the mining sector. So at times, if you come up with standards that um, are deemed to be very strict, then there's also that fear that uh, investors may say, well, we are going to go to Botswana because their standards are more enabling. And that has resulted in problems in terms of the weakening of the standards. So that's why at times regional standards comes into play. Uh, we are talking, for example, now the African mining vision. What does it say about these issues? Uh, and now there's talk about the development of a regional mining vision. So if we have instruments like that, I think even at the SADC level, the, 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 the SADC mining protocol, if countries can actually be guided by standards that are, are cross-cutting, then that can help a lot in terms of enforcement. But at times that need to outcompete each other ends up working against the interests of, uh, of, of the citizens and the, the environment suffers in the process because uh, the focus is now on attracting foreign direct investment, but at times at the expense of the environment, at the expense of the environmental and social governance values that we have already made reference to. So I would say that uh, in terms of capacity, uh, the capacity could be there, but uh, at times these are overridden by business uh, concerns or business interests, and that end up uh, compromising their ability to enforce uh, the. So having good laws and policies is one thing, but implementation and enforcement is another thing. So at times, there are those times when governments fail simply because they are now taking into account economic consideration, which is now in violation of the concept of sustainable development because it talks about a balance between economic interests and also social and environmental interests. And mm. uh, countries are guided by that, then they'll be able to come up with laws that try to balance all those interests. Yeah, I guess listening to you, I'm struck by the fact that we're all said and done, the law is very important, but it's not a panacea. Uh, the, for the law, the, the law must work with other considerations uh, and the law itself is subject to all uh, sort of uh, circumstances, which means that you could have a good law, but you might not end up, uh, you know, applying it for different reasons. I'm struck by the contradiction, for instance, between having a global, a regional standard and then national needs and having mm. to weigh which ones goes. I, I, I'm also uh, listening to you and mindful that governments have to decide you know, what's going to work? Is, is it going to be protection of the environment or is it going to be ensuring the welfare of the people? We know now, for instance, that the Germans have said, well, for now, we will use coal because we don't want German children being cold in the wintertime. And so in this case, the environment can wait. 
so so it 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 strikes me that having a law standards protocols in themselves is it, not an end a hell of a lot more ne is needed before we can you know do what is necessary to protect the environment but no doubt we'll be talking about this uh, again in future because you, you've said a lot and I'd like to perhaps pick your brain further as we progress. But for now, thank you very much for joining the Sheila Kham Extractive Podcast. I've learned a lot in the short time that I've uh, spoken with you. Thank you very much, Sheila. It has been good interacting with you and uh, we look forward to further engagement.